We are here on Conversate Reads. I am Valerie Royal, joined by our host, Adrian Brown, and we'd like to welcome you to our book chat. Uh, this evening, we are hosting author, speaker, the good doctor who has many titles, to say the least, um, who is also the author of a few titles, including today's book, which is A Face of Courage. And we'd like to welcome you all to Conversate Reads. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Tommy Watson. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It is a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Dr. Tommy, we are excited to have you here. And thank you, Val, for opening us up this evening. So we're going to just jump right in. I want to just say, Dr. Tommy, I was totally in awe reading your story over the last month. And while it doesn't take a month to read what you wrote, it, I just wanted to savor your story every time that I picked it up. I just was in total and complete awe about just your life and everything that you went through. And so um, with that, I, I would like for you to just kind of share like what you went through in, in journaling what your life was all about growing up. Yeah, you know what? Um, I remember re reaching a, a breaking point in college where I felt that everything I went through in Denver, I had left behind once I left the great, on the Greyhound bus and came to University of Minnesota um, and began my journey as a college football player. But I quickly found out that a lot of the pain of the past had followed me to Minnesota mm. and was, um, was actually eating me alive. I, I began to seek ways to, um, I didn't go to therapy, but writing about my story and talking about it became very, very therapeutic for myself. And um, going back to my early years of thinking about my mother and father who were arrested 121 times by the time I finished high school. Growing up, you know, they were drug addicts and shoplifters and just, you know, the constant changing of households, uh, never being with all my siblings in the same place, bouncing around from place to place to place, never knowing what was going to be waiting for me when I got home, never knowing what was going to be happening the next morning. I uh, didn't know where my meals were coming from. It was very painful. It was very embarrassing at the time because in the 80s and the 90s, it wasn't really common for a lot of kids to be in the foster care, at least a lot of kids that didn't talk about being in the foster care system. So it was very embarrassing, very painful. And it was, it was very, um, I almost want to say mystical in the sense of no one had a blueprint in terms of Tommy, okay, here you are. Here's how you make it out of it. You know? Mm -hmm. so, I, I um, recall one part of your book where you talked about the difference between being in poverty versus being homeless. And I had never even given that any consideration, but when you actually spelled that out, I was like, wow, that, that was just really amazing. Can you talk a little bit about that, that whole experience and how you came to even come to that knowledge and understanding yourself? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was, I was stating that someone had asked me a question, um, you, know, you know, when it comes to poverty, what's the difference between poverty and actually being homeless? And I remember in middle school where um, my friends and everyone would live in the projects and the, a school bus would go to the projects each morning and pick them all up and put them on the bus and bring them to middle school and then take them back home. And all of them would get off the bus and run into their apartments and Granted, some of them may have been sleeping in bedrooms with their siblings or what have you, but a lot of them had their own bedrooms or what have you, 
But when it came to myself and my siblings, we were coming from a motel room in a city, Commerce City, Marvin, which is not right outside of Denver, Colorado, uh, walking 10 miles to the school, getting dropped off sometimes, and no one knew where we lived at. Can you imagine being in middle school where you're in the prime of your social experience and you can't tell anyone where you live at? You can't give them your telephone number because you know if you give them your telephone number, they're gonna call the office of the hotel first, the motel first, and they're gonna redirect them to the room. And then we were all, nine of us were living in this one motel room at the time, two beds, one bathroom. Um, it was a very miserable situation. And I, I just remember thinking that I wish I could have lived in the project, you know? Mm. I thought it would have been a step up in my life, you know? And then even, even in the moments when you talk about homelessness, um, those things, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a law in the school system that talks about the, the McKinney-Vento Act, which really gives schools a chance, schools a chance to focus in on kids who are homeless. And it really talks about those kids who are living in shelters, motel rooms, doubling up with other uh, families. We experienced that a lot, you know, and it was very embarrassing. Um, it was tough. I remember even being in the foster homes where, where you know, situations where I wasn't with my, my parents and going to schools and having other kids talk about their parents and then them asking me who I lived with. And I'm kind of lying saying, yeah, it was my, you know, my aunt, you know, or my grandmother sometimes. And, but I could never get myself to the place where I can tell them that I was living in a foster home because taboo about saying those words. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. So, you know, again, throughout your story, I was really in awe about everything that you endured throughout your childhood. And there were so many moments where I read your story and I thought, you know, finally you reached a breakthrough. Um, and then only to have another setback with your parents. And so what was your North Star during this entire time? Or who was your North Star? Yeah, yeah. You know, early on, I remember by the time I was in third grade, I lived in numerous foster homes and crisis centers and motel rooms. I went to four different elementary schools in one year between my second and third grade year of school. Um, met my oldest brother, if you guys remember, my foster home in second grade. So by the time I was in third grade, my only goal in terms of North Star was really to join the local Crips. That's what I wanted to do. They seemed to be a group of individuals who took care of each other. They seemed to be a group of individuals who looked out for each other, who had it all going on. And I remember getting ready to go through the process of doing that, and my aunt introduced me to sports. And after that, sports became my North Star because everything I began to strive for at that particular time, focusing on trying to get to the NBA. And that right there, kept me focused. It kept me going. Um, it kept me in my darkest moments. It kept me really just dreaming about a life of possibly playing in the NBA or NFL someday. So that became my North Star, you know, going from the gangs to the transition of, of, of wanting to be in the, in the NFL, which is the, the case for many of our, you think about most of our kids growing up in the city today. And this was the case for me in terms of what I observed in terms of success. It was the guys on the corner who were selling drugs, those guys were successful on one hand. And then on the other end, it would be the guys who look like me playing football on television. So oftentimes when I go in schools, I tell teachers, you know, because teachers will hear students say they want to be athletes and then they'll get their dreams crushed and torn down by these adults. So now this dream has been squashed over here. So now where am I headed? I'm headed to this other dream over here. So we see it as early as elementary school um, when it comes to a lot of our young people. So we got to let our kids dream, no matter what that North Star may be. We got to 
direct them to positive images and role models and uh, keep them going on the straight and narrow and embrace, you know, whatever the North Star may be. Absolutely. It was very clear that the people and your experiences in the Five Points area had a great impact uh, on your life throughout your childhood. And so, you know, now that you have, if you will, arrived, what have you done in return to impact that community? I heard you say earlier before we got on camera that they have done a lot of gentrification in the area, but um, what, what has been your contribution? Absolutely. You know, so over the years, I've really tried to get back and, and spend a lot of time speaking to a lot of the youth in the uh, community. I have been gone for almost uh, 27 years since I've, I've left Denver mm. and definitely reconnecting with a lot of my own, my own family members back there, my niece and nephews and little cousins and trying to be an inspiration to them. So that's, that's primarily what I've done over the years, you know, speaking at the various churches and what have you. The funny thing is, though, um, as much as I love Five Points and much as the folks love me, you know, for the most part today, though, that wasn't always the case. I remember in high school um, making the decision to take my talents to the suburbs, and that really ticked off a lot of people. And when I went to the suburbs, to this suburban white high school, I mean, me and my friends who went out there, we were called Uncle Toms and sellouts and all these other things, but it was the opportunity that we saw fit for us to have a, a different life later on in life though. You know, so it was, it, was, it was painful having the neighborhood and the folks that you loved and cared about so deeply now in some degrees turn their backs on you and said, you're selling them out. Right. Choosing to go a different route, you know, but it's, you know, we've come full circle and been able to embrace each other and, um, I've been touted as one of the heroes and one of the, the folks that people look up to in the area. So all has been forgiven and it's uh, all is well. That's awesome. You know, it's so easy to get sucked back into those things when people want to not lift you up, but rather pull you back and keep you where they are. Absolutely. So that is wonderful. You talk about um, an experience that you had after going to the University of Minnesota and and or while you were there in school, returning home and having the drive-by shooting that, you know, nearly killed you and, and you thought your mother was, yeah. was killed in the process. I mean, what an amazing thing to come over, you know, overcome, but what did you feel in that moment and how did you take that experience moving forward? You know, again, you know, um, when I got to the University of Minnesota, I was a very selfish, self-centered person. Life was all about me and trying to get to the NFL. And um, I didn't really care much about the plight of others because it was, again, it was about my hurt and pain and uh, trying to figure out ways for me to get out. And I remember on this one particular time, I was going back home, driving my Jetta back home to Denver. My Jetta broke down and got home to Denver and I was driving my older brother's minivan and, and his, his minivan was souped up and my mother and I, you know, made the decision to go pick up his girlfriend. And it was, it's, it's weird how you can think about how many times you've driven up in front of your house and parallel parked your vehicle. You take for granted that, that moment there, you know, mm -hmm. so particular day we were parallel parking the minivan. And I look back and um, Cherokee starts coming out here, black Cherokee. And then instantly gunshots erupt and start going through this van. And I remember thinking to myself with my foot on the brake, leaning over to the middle of the car, hearing the glass and feeling the glass shatter on me, that, man, I'm about to die. And I remember just thinking for a moment, I'm getting ready to die. 
And then the gunshots had stopped and I got up and I, I got the glass off of me and everything. And like you said, I, my mind went to my mother. Thank God I hadn't been shot. My mind went to my mother who popped up. She was fine, the young lady back popped up. But I remember stepping away from the minivan and looking at the minivan from front to back. It was shot up from front to back. And there was a bullet that was lodged in the bottom windowsill of the driver's door that was meant to kill me. And mm. at that moment in time, it made me realize how short and how precious life was. And I remember going back to the University of Minnesota, a whole new man. And mm. At that time, I went back to the University of Minnesota on a mission to discover who Tommy Watson really was. Because up to this point, Tommy Watson had been defined as an athlete, someone who was tough, who can fight, ladies' man, all those type of things. But it was more to Tommy Watson than just those things. And I went back to the University of Minnesota. I remember stopped, I stopped hanging out with a lot of my guys. I stopped doing a lot of stuff that I was doing and uh, really got on a mission to really kind of find out who Tommy Watson was because in that moment, I could have been gone and my life had served no purpose for myself. So mm -hmm. I've been on a mission to find out the purpose for Tommy Watson since that day. That's excellent. So I want to open the floor for um, any of our other participants to ask you questions. Yes, Dr. Watson, how are you? I'm doing great, sir. How about yourself? Doing fine, thank you. I want to thank you for being a part of this, this book discussion, and I want to salute you for writing this book. I, I read it, and I was moved. I actually was moved to tears during certain sections, and I said, when I talk to Dr. Tommy Watson, I'm going to let him have it, because he's got me out here <laughs> in public reading this book, crying. But uh, I just want to commend you for writing this book, I know that, you know, doing a project like this, um, you had mentioned that, you know, telling your story for some of us in the black community, you know, these are, these are stories, these are um, secrets that we're not supposed to right. tell other folks. It's supposed to be right. in our house. You're not supposed to let stuff out of our house. Yes. But by reading your book, I understood that all the trials and tribulations that you went through, that by not being able to speak about them, by not being able to open up and to be able to process it with somebody, that it was consuming you. Yes. And that it, and that it was eating you alive. Yes. So you mentioned you had a friend in college, your homeboy who you all would share stories with and you were able to be vulnerable with one another. Yes. Um, you wrote this book back in 2008, correct? It was published in 2000. I wrote it back but, in 1999, actually. Okay, so it was, published in, it was published in 2008, wrote it back in 1999. Can you talk about your feelings when the book was actually completed and you were able to tell your story and you were able to get everything off of your chest and not be able to hide who Tommy Watson was to all of your friends and family? Absolutely. You know, when I finished writing the book in 1999, the first person, so I had an aunt, my, grand, my great aunt, who's my grandmother's sister, on my dad's side, um, whenever she did, you did something in the family that she disapproved of, she would type up a letter. She's 92 years old, she would type up a letter and she would send it to you, mail it to you. So when I, I remember finishing the book and there was a lot of buzz around my family. Uh, the majority of them were not happy that I did this, the book. And um, she sent me a letter and she said in this letter, she said, why are you telling this story? You should not be telling this story. No one wants to hear your story and really just discouraging me. And it was really painful, disappointing and discouraging, but that was the culture that I grew up living in. So as I went through the stuff that I went through back in Denver as a kid, I couldn't talk about the pain, the frustration. It was all about the outer experience. 
you know, look like you're doing great, look like you're fine every day. So again, on the outside, as a, as a male, I bought into looking like the athlete, being the ladies man, being the tough guy. And I remember again at the University of Minnesota getting to a place where being the athlete, being the ladies man and the tough guy was not able to sustain me. And I remember literally um, after meeting with one of my um, um, advisors, the pain and the, the amount of depression that I found myself in was so deep that the only thing I could do was just drop my head in tears and just beg for some mercy of you know, some kind, just some type of relief because I was having these pounding headaches every day and I, I couldn't understand where the stress was coming from. And it wasn't until I began to open up to my teammate that I began to have some relief. And in that relief, I was able to be me, Tommy Watson, the vulnerable person. And I responded to my aunt later on afterwards telling her that my telling my story had nothing to do with shaming my family, had nothing to do with me trying to be a victim. It had nothing to do with me trying to get attention, but it was about healing for me. But the big, the big catalyst came for me was I shared my story locally with the news for the very first time. And I remember in doing that, um, I was getting ready to head to a nightclub in downtown Minneapolis after the, the, um, the show had aired on the news. And there was a brother that was walking towards me. And as he got closer to me, he kept staring at me. And then he locked eyes and he started smiling. And then he came to me and said, you were the guy on the news. And he started crying. He said, thank you for telling your story. And I said, wow. So by the time he and I got through talking and embracing, I was so messed up I couldn't even go to the club that night. But I also knew that at that, that time that I was on a mission to not only heal myself, but to use my story to heal others as well. And one of my nieces kind of came at me on Facebook today because I, I shared the difference between poverty and, and um, homelessness through my own personal story. And she got upset and she said, why are you talking about this? And I had to tell her again, this is my story. Share it from my perspective. And my goal in sharing my story is to always inspire, motivate, and enlighten people. Not to shame anyone or anything else like that. So um, it felt so freeing, though, you know? And then being at a place right now to, today where I can talk about the pain, because there were many years I could not talk about the pain. Mm. I avoided the pain through sports. And, um, you know, one thing about my book, if you look on the cover, there's a, the cover of it. There's a, um, a me under a mask and there's me um, in the person. The reason I chose that cover was because as, as men, sometimes we, we hide behind the mask of sports, money, education, uh, being a ladies man, fraternities, all these different things to keep people from really knowing who we really are. And at the core of who we are is the very thing that we want, we need to expose the world to. So again, in doing that, I was able to expose the world to who Tommy Watson really was, gain a greater understanding for myself, and I'm at peace. So when those folks in my family who come at me and tell me, don't tell my story, I'm at peace telling them, no, I'm going to continue to tell my story. Thanks for your comments. But if it doesn't work for you, you can hit that unfriend button on Facebook. But at the end of the day, I'm going to continue to inspire people and motivate them with my story. So I appreciate that question. Yeah, it's, it's, it was very courageous because, you know, it just now became acceptable for us as black men to be able to talk about our mental health, our vulnerability. I mean, you look at what's going on in the news right now with the tragedy with Kobe. I think because people collectively 
are feeling that pain, it's easy for us to process it. Yeah. But I brought up when the book was published to emphasize how much courage it took for you because 1999, 2008, you know, that was the height of you know, hip hop and yeah. you know, the, the, what we call now toxic masculinity, if you believe in that, in that terminology. And it just wasn't cool for brothers to be able to talk about their feelings right. without being considered soft, not only by other brothers, but by sisters as well. Yeah. So I wanted to highlight that courage that you had in writing this book. One other question that I had for you, the thing that I noticed throughout the mm -hmm. book is that as children, we grow up with parents and your parents are supposed to be your provider, your protector, but not only those two things, but your advocate as well. You're right. supposed to be the person that is lobbying for you and pushing for you. And it was heartbreaking to hear some of the things that your father said to you yeah. when you were trying to pursue your goals for athleticism and for your education and what other people were saying to you to try to discourage you. And you did have a few people, your grandma Louise, right? Yep. Your Aunt Millie who were in your corner and they didn't always have all the resources to get you to what you needed to, needed to do, but they did their best, right? Absolutely. So, and I know that you now are advocating for other children who were in your situation as well. Can you talk about what you're doing now and how what those people did for you and your sister Melanie as well? That's what brought me to tears when you talked about her being your hero. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Can you, you know, yeah, and can you talk about how you use how other people reached back to help you in whatever way they could and how you're doing that now? Absolutely. You mentioned my sister Melanie. Um, she was absolutely amazing. I remember getting off the bus in five points and seeing her on the corner. She was on crack cocaine by this time. She was out there kind of soliciting herself for uh, prostitution. And it had been years since I had uh, seen her. And I remember running across the streets and, and embracing her in front of all my boys. And my boys like, man, what you doing talking to that crackhead? And I was like, man, that's, that's my sister, man. And don't say anything else about my sister again, man. So I always had this strong love and affinity for my sister because she was the one who had stayed home with my baby sister while we went to school to steal food and what have you. She was the one who, who kind of stepped in the gap and was my, um, kind of served as our, our big aunt or big sister in many of those situations. And of course, my grandma Louise, who came to rescue us from foster homes, was always huge. My aunt ben, Millie. Um, but even when I got off to college um, and I began to tell my story, I remember one of the first things I wanted to do, uh, the University of Minnesota, we were, we were scheduled to play a game during Thanksgiving weekend. And of course, a lot of guys were upset because they couldn't go back home for um, Thanksgiving or what have you. And I remember going to a couple of coaches and saying, I think we should go over to the um, Kara Tubman shelter and do something for the families there. And they were like, great, you know. And one coach knew my story. He was like, Tommy, this might be a great time for you to share your story. And I was like, oh, I didn't really have that in mind, but I didn't want to go help the kids. So, you know, so it was always a piece of me wanting to help and give back. But I remember sharing my story for the first time at that setting and how it impacted those folks um, at the Harry Tubman Center. So I've always been on a mission just to give back because there were so many folks that give, gave back to me. So even when I was in college, I would, um, I would spend a lot of time, you know, um, going into schools, um, going to Martin Luther King March. Those things were very, very pertinent to me. Uh, even now, I, I, I mentor kids every week at one of the toughest schools in Charlotte. Um, you know, I had, a, I had a, um, a conversation with one of the teachers because she was calling this kid by this derogatory nickname. And I'm saying, uh, does he like that name? She's like, no, that's what everyone else calls him. I said, I think we need to call him something else. So my mentees, I call them all doctor. 
So we greet each other by the name doctor every time we, we, we meet. We, we depart, we go by doctor as well. But I have a strong heart. And I tell my kids, I say there's two things. You may not necessarily have lived in the same environment I, I, I lived in growing up. However, you're going to live through me to know the, the, the struggles of that. But I also want you to be a person who's going to give back to those kids as well, though. So you may not necessarily live in that environment, grew up in it right now. But those are the kids I want you targeting and giving back to when it comes time to give back. So I spend a lot of time giving back. I don't post things on Facebook because I just naturally love people and I want to see people win. I want to see us. I want to see our black kids win, our black boys win. I want to see all kids win, but I have a strong affinity to see our black boys and black kids win because we've gone through so much stuff. And in particular, those kids who are facing issues with homelessness and poverty. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you for that. Does anyone else have a question for Dr. Tommy? First of all, I want to congratulate you, Tommy, on all your efforts and everything that you're doing in bringing this group together and um, letting everybody know your story. And, um, you know, it's a positive, inspirational story to a lot of people, just like uh, I forgot the brother's name earlier that was speaking, but um, like you said, he was uh, caught off guard and pretty much uh, taken back and taken to tears off the story. You know, and, and that's a, uh, me, I've been with Tommy as a friend for 30 plus years now. Yeah. So, um, you know, I could validate a lot of these stories and um, just the inspiration that it has been to myself as well. Like, uh, like you said, he started Faces of Carriage uh, back in, um, actually it was about what, like 95, 90, 94, 95, you was uh, kind of tampering with it with the idea. And then, um, you know, you had us speaking at different events. Uh, early back at University of Minnesota, yeah. and then that transpired into the book that you have now. And, um, you know, that was interesting to know because I didn't know that that one simple fact that it was actually written back in 1999 itself yeah. and brought to fruition in 2008. So, you know, um, as as part of the validation, as part of Thorian to say that Tommy had went through these things, I was the person that he called from Denver when the incident went down. So, you know, and that's because we relate. Um, I'm from Newport News, Virginia. We relate in a lot of different ways. And by far, his story is like, uh, you know, it is genuine in, in what he wrote. So, um, but we do relate as far as the street aspect of things. So um, it's very inspirational now to um, see you uh, motivating people and being inspiring to the youth. And I also want to put a call out to you to come out to Virginia with me here recently. Uh, I mean, I'm here soon uh, after the CIAA stuff uh, go down here in Charlotte. But however, but I like to put out that uh, call to order with you to uh, come out to uh, Newport News, Virginia, because they definitely need your um, inspiration out there and some direction. And, and um, I think that'll be a great avenue for you. But, you got um, it, brother. I'm there. Let's do it. There we go. And well, I, I appreciate you, brother. And, you know, that your years of friendship, man, has meant a lot to me. Man, we played the same position, man. And it's great to see the, the men that we have become over the years and how we fought off the adversity, man, to, to become who we are today. And uh, uh, great Omega men as well, right? And um, no shout-outs, no shout-outs, no right, shout-outs. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks, Javon. Good to see you. Yeah. Hey, um, Dr. Tom, question. Question. I got a question for Marvin. Can I ask Marvin a question? No. No. Oh, my bad. <laughs> I'm here. Marvin, you know, it really touched me, one, to hear that the, the, um, the story that brought you to tears. Can you say more about um, what you read in a particular moment that brought you to tears? I'm just curious to know. 
it was it was when you were talking about your your sister Melanie and everything that she had went through to help you all succeed and have a chance to uh, just just to break out of your situation, and it just brought me to tears. Good thing I had my sunglasses on because I put them on, man, because I was because they was they was flowing and it, um, yeah, it just touched me. So that was it. Thank you for sharing that, brother. That, yeah, she she means she means the world to me, man. That yeah, that was a very transparent moment, and I wanted to have her know that when I was writing this book, I, I shared that in particular with her. She was my hero. Yeah. How is she today? You know what she has um she has kicked the drug habit. Good. She is she is fighting to to live a better life and I've been with her as she's going along. I'm very proud of her. She's working at um Coors Stadium and Pepsi Stadium, kind of working her way up, um trying to find her her her, her North Star right now, you know. All so right. her 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 brother coach as she begins to find that. But I am very, very proud of her and I love her dearly. And she knows that um, she has my support as she's going on this journey as well, though. So very, very proud of her. She's kicked that habit and uh, just, just one of the sweetest people, you know, in, in the whole wide world, you know, next to my mom. She's just a, a genuinely good person. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Val, you had some questions? I did. A um, couple things I wanted to ask. First, when you were writing the book, who was your intended audience? Do you really see this as a book? that would appeal more to men to get them on, on kind of this side of being able to open up to people and tell their story and share their pain because the message around wearing the mask seems to be pretty prominent. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a good one, right? And so the timing for that, we already mentioned Kobe's passing. Um, and I know I had made the personal observation that most of my male friends for the first time in a long time, very visible in terms of their emotion and their wanting to share. I got several phone calls from guy friends just wanting to talk about it. Yeah. And, and I had to slow down long enough to even entertain that conversation, right? Because in my mind, it was normal for them to do, but I had to really think about it because that his transition took them to a place of some past hurts. Right. So my question to you is just really, when you were writing the book, and I realized it was a long time ago, did it ever occur to you that the book really was more so for men than for women? Or was the intent just to get the story out and you hadn't really thought about it that way? You know, when I wrote the book, my, my writing the book, I had no plans to sell any copies of the book whatsoever. It was a matter of just healing. You know, mm -hmm. I, had, I said, I want to get it on paper. I don't know if I'll ever sell any books. That's okay, but I, I know I've gotten it on paper. And one of the things that happens when you write a book like this, um, you, you got to become every character because the characters aren't there with you as you're writing the book. So I had to become my dad, the guy who had a lot right. of anger and um, just frustration with, I had to become that guy to get his part of the story. My mother, I had to become all these folks in my book. So what it did was gave me a, a huge perspective in terms of some of the things my mother went through. I was able to forgive her, my father and others as I was healing as well though. But I discovered in the process that it did become something that was very encouraging for a lot of men. It gave me a platform to be able to articulate my emotions without breaking down and losing it. I know Javon and I were just with um, a couple weeks ago, we were in a, in, um, a gathering with, with a couple of brothers and we talked about our emotions. We talked about how mm -hmm. it felt growing up without our fathers. Mm -hmm. And then here we are in this bar, we were talking about, and these are Omega men, you know, guys who, you know, our fraternity is all about being, you know, tough and don't say much. But we talked about the, the pain that came along with not having our fathers. And I think we as black men, we got to get to a place where we're willing to delve in and stop wearing the mask 
of um, fraternities, uh, mask of employment, mask of positions, titles, uh, money, women, all these things, and really, really explore who we are and how those things and what we've gone through in life and how those things have shaped us. I know Javon had talked about how he's reconciled with his father, um, going through some painful things. We've encouraged one of the other brothers who was also with us to really think about what emotions he felt when his father was not there, when his father had come into a space and left him and he didn't know what was going to happen next. You know, Marvin mentions, um, you know, we're talking how disappointing it is when you come to this earth and, and the two people who are supposed to protect you the most disappoint you the most. There's some really hard feelings that come along with that, you know, and as men, we've, we're told to suppress those feelings and not talk about them and to be tough and just move on. And it caused a lot of damage, but I'm glad to see today that I'm through that. I'm able to articulate my feelings about that. And then also able to help other brothers and sisters as well, share their feelings as well though. So I'm very proud that that's kind of the byproduct that's kind of evolved out of that though. Yeah. And, and that warrants the follow-up question, right? So <clears throat> what is your advice? And, and I actually want to put a, a spin on this question because we do have some athletes on the call and, you know, the whole athlete persona. And so when you talk about wearing the mask of being the ball player, wearing the mask of being the great athlete, so many people, and I know firsthand because I, I met you at that time, right? Yeah. So we knew that was Tommy, the football player from the U. Right. You know, we, we knew you as that. And so having to wear that mask at whatever age, and at what point do you start to separate yourself and find your identity outside of sports? And what does that transition look like? Because some do it more successfully than others. And, and as a female, so here's part two, right? As a female that interacts with you, how does that work for them? Because a lot of times, I know my friends that have played sports, they carry that identity with them well into their years even when they stopped playing like 20, 30 years ago. And as a woman, sometimes it's hard to connect yeah. because their whole identity is shaped around being Absolutely. this person and this figure. So Absolutely. talk to us about that. And, and that's a great point because again, many of us as, as men, we start playing sports early. Right. When you guys are playing, bar playing Barbie dolls. We're out there roughing up, playing with each other. You know, imagine ourselves being all these different sports figures. We become those guys in our minds at a very early age. Mm -hmm. And then when you get a chance to bring those things into fruition, whether it be in high school or college or the pros, that's how you begin to define yourself. Right. And a lot of us have a very, very tough time letting that go. For me, it came after the injury. Javon sustained the injury too, so he faced the same thing as well. But then once I got the back injury, I began to see how the University of Minnesota had turned on me. And I said, whoa, okay, it's like that now? But for some guys, they never, and then again, again, with the question Adrian brought me to about the drive-by shooting, had I not experienced the drive-by shooting, I would have never really had that come to Jesus moment because oftentimes we think we have, we think we have forever to be here. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that forever, we never spend the time. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about who we are authentically, you know? So when I was about to die in that drive-by shooting, it forced me to say, hey, you know what? I'm really not that guy. It, it looks like that guy on paper, but I'm not that guy. But for some of us, though, it, that mask of uh, being a football player or basketball player or an athlete kind of shields you from a lot of things. It shields you from your insecurities, shields you from people 
Learning about your insecurities, it shields you from people um, learning your vulnerabilities. As men, sometimes we have a tough time being vulnerable. So it's easier to let you see the mask of um, athletics or our titles or our fraternity or money or all these other things. And it causes a wedge in terms of us getting to know each other as men and women. And I, I can tell you that, that was a big struggle for me and many of my teammates. We didn't know how to be authentic when it came to having relationships with women. A lot of it was a game. And if the woman wasn't cheering us on, we were out the door. Because hmm. we were used to the, all the applause. Mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of us men, we love affirmations. And the affirmations just need to come in a different form because th those affirmations are important though. I think women need to know that. That's interesting. Um, but they need, to, they'll, they'll come in a, they need to come in a different form once you're in a relationship, though. But you can't not give a man who's love affirmations affirmation and, and tell him, you know, okay, you need to tone it down. You need to now be, adopt this other love language. You know, most, most of us, our love language is affirmation. We want to be applauded. We want to be clapped for. We want to be told we're doing well. So in, essence, in some essence, for a lot of our women, you have to become that coach, you know, or that cheerleader to help us discover the new us as well. Ooh, I wasn't ready for that therapy session right there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have a few minutes left here. And so if there are any questions, um, now's the time to ask your question. DB, you don't have a question, DB? No question. I'm just listening to your story and comparing it to mine. I'm an old ball player too. Okay. Uh, to the point where I didn't retire until I was 41. Wow. Yeah, so my knees, my back, my cough, everything hurts. Um, <laughs> so just, just hearing your story, just what, what brought you to sports, what got you through um, gang activity, uh, what got you to, you know, because I have a similar story, but less of from rags to riches. It was a poor little rich kid trying to get back to his rags. Oh, really? That's interesting because I wanted to be that guy. I had to be that. I couldn't lose my street credit. I couldn't, I couldn't let the family down, you know, or whatever. Right. So, wow. um, so when I hear your story of where, where you've come from um, and just rising above your situation, man, it's, it's, it's great. I haven't had a chance to read the book, um, but I'm hearing your story going, yeah, I've heard this. Yes. I've seen, I understand this. Yes. I know where it's coming from. Right. Uh, so I appreciate you and applaud you for letting people see the bleeding of your cuts yeah. versus just the scars. And that's where the scars came right. from. Absolutely. So, so yeah. So man, just, just, I, yo, you, you, you're, you're kind of going to get me to write a book. Let's do it, man. Maybe, maybe. So yeah, man, just um, keep doing what you're doing, man. People need us. You know, I a little pat on the shoulder for myself today. I signed nine kids to collegiate um, programs. Today. Wow. Congratulations, brother. I'm just over here ecstatic about it, man. Just and one of them was my stepson. Wow. Wow. That's nice. great. Well, you're right nice. to Concord, man. I'm Congratulations, like, man. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, that good, congrats, brother. Congrats. Good for my pockets too, because you know that that tuition. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, DBI, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, one of the things I think we gotta get to doing, not just as black men, but we gotta get to a place where we're willing to share our stories. Yeah. Because I may not necessarily relate to your experience. I can relate to your emotions. I can have mm -hmm. relate to my similar experience as well, though. But oftentimes, Absolutely. we don't spend enough time sharing our experiences with each other. Yeah. And once Absolutely. I share my experience with you, it's very, very tough for me not to love and like you. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Absolutely. So I, I would encourage you to write that book, brother. Please. I got to sit, sit down long enough first. I'm, I'm, still, <laughs> but I'm still out in these streets coaching. And, and, yeah, Just I, journal a little bit every day. Absolutely. It took, right. you know, my book, it took, right. me a year to, it took me a year to write. I would get up at 3.30 every morning. I'd write from 3.30 to 4, 4.30 in the morning. I was a principal at the time, so then I would leave and go get to my job by 6 o'clock. But I devoted an hour every day for a year. The slight edge. Yeah. It can be done. Slight edge. You got to just do a little bit at a time. Yeah. yeah That's bad. I, I see you smirking. <laughs> I call that the entrepreneur's hour, that 3.30 hour. Ooh, Lord. <laughs> okay. Well, my entrepreneur hours are a little bit later, but... <laughs> 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 well, I know we, we only have a few more minutes. I, I want to squeeze one quick question in um, and just talk about, you know, the, the speaking engagements and, and what that has done for you and the impact that is now having on your children, right. right? Because we know you as this phenomenal Dr. Tommy, but talk about Dr. Tommy, the dad yeah. and, and what fatherhood looks like. Yeah. And you know what, I, I, um, I walked away from my job as a principal about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And people thought I was nuts. But all I really wanted to do was just inspire people and go home. That's why I got, I got to a place where I didn't want to manage a bunch of people. I just wanted to tell my story, inspire other people and go home. And everyone around me thought I was like, you know, they're like, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? And as a principal, I remember coming home many days, not fully engaged because the hours were really long. I spent most of the day working with everyone else's kids. I would come home and I would be there physically but not there emotionally. Mm. Um, so leaving my job as a principal and really kind of just becoming an entrepreneur gave me the freedom, which was what I was looking for, the freedom of time, the freedom of earnings to, to live my own life and live my best life. Even if it meant losing everything in the process, I was okay with it. But I, was, but I had to be at a place where I can have the freedom to um, spend time with family, uh, travel as I wanted to, and make a difference in people's lives every day. So my kids, they get a chance to see daddy being very authentic. Um, they can care less about Dr. Tommy Watson. They actually hate hearing my stories about my, my life story. So I'm kind of like them now. You know, we were kids and our parents start sharing their stories like, oh, man, here you go again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what my kids are doing. Walking, yeah. walking five miles in the snow with no boots, right, right, right. all uphill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, here you go again, Dad. You know, and I tell him, I said, hey, it's all in the book, man. It's in the book. You got to read the book. But there's it's nothing like being a, um, um, a parent and a husband. This is very uh, profound. I got remarried about three years ago. And um, um, nothing like having someone in my, in my corner who supports me and believes in me. And again, you know, having good friends around you is, is amazing, like yourself. Val and I have been friends for almost 30 years as well, too. So That's keeping those connections um, is vitally important. And um, just being authentic to yourself and not being driven by money, fame, or any of that type of stuff. You know, when I leave here, uh, I get off the stages. I'm, I'm just Tommy Watson when I get home, you know. And that's what I enjoy. Yeah. Excellent. And, and while your kids don't appreciate it now, they will someday appreciate having your story written for them to always have as a treasure. So. I hope so. And I, I believe yeah. they will. Um, Sometimes we're young, we, we, don't, we don't see the advantages of that, you know, but we definitely learn later on. I appreciate all the stories my, my parents and grandparents tell me now because I'm learning, still learning lessons from them as, to this day, though. So appreciate you guys having me this evening as well. It's been a pleasure, uh, Dr. Tommy. And I didn't ask you the one question that I really wanted to ask because I felt 
like so connected to your family and your story um, mm -hmm. that I really wanted to know just like what happened to everybody in, yeah. in your family, Auntie Millie and, you know, your brother Levi and, and yeah. everyone. Yeah, you know, so uh, unfortunately, my mother passed away in 2001. Um, her passing really kind of forced us to kind of come together, my siblings, um, my older sister, Melanie, uh, doing a lot better and transitioning herself. My second older sister, Cheryl, I got I to gotta make sure I'm using the name for the book. That's not their real names, but my sister, Cheryl, mm -hmm. um, who was a uh, nurse doing very well. My older brother, who's mm -hmm. kind of, um, I met by pure coincidence in a foster home. He's kind of finding his way. Um, my younger brother is doing his thing. He's in Charlotte here now. My, young, my younger sister's here in Charlotte. But the one thing that, um, that is common amongst all of us, there's still a lot of pain there, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, there's still a lot of pain, unresolved pain, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping that as a family, we'll, we will take the time someday to really kind of sit down and, and, and really have a true authentic discussion about what we felt going through it. Because what you're hearing is Tommy Watson's story. My sister may have a different side of the story. I tell Absolutely. them, there's no, there's, there's not that one story is better than the other. Here's my perspective. Here's your perspective. Let's talk about how I felt and let's begin to talk about the lessons we learned and let's begin to move on. But it's hard to sometimes manage those relationships when there's still so much pain there in some of those relationships. My uh, Aunt Millie, that's my, that's my girl. She's still in Denver. She mm. wants to move to uh, North Carolina someday and mm. uh, hoping to get her down here. And then most of my family's back home in Denver. Unfortunately, a lot of them are still trying to find their ways as well. Mm. So I just, I want to say this over and over again. The more and more we can begin to be honest about our past and the challenges we faced and begin to look at the lessons we learned, I think the quicker we can accelerate ourselves to be our best selves in life and best selves for the next person we're going to meet as well. But when you walk around and you try to silence your past right. and try to ignore your past, your past is still with you. Mm -hmm. right. You may not know it, but your DNA, your DNA knows you. Wherever you go, your DNA is with you. So you got to be able to, to kind of go back and dissect your DNA and kind of know what worked for you, what didn't work for you. So it, it also gives you a chance to be in healthy relationships as well because a lot of us go into relationships that aren't healthy because we don't know our full selves. We haven't been authentic when it comes to sharing our stories with ourselves first and then with others as well. So um, I'm glad to see a lot of my family members who are uh, striving to do better and, and, and I'm working on it. I haven't got it all figured out either, you know. There's some days I still hurt and have pain as well, you know, and particularly losing my mom at the age of 46. Um, there's a lot of songs that I, I listen to and I, I reminisce and I think about her and wishing that she was still here. But so it's, it's going to be a journey for all of us. You know, as we go through life, we got to have ebbs and flows, you know, but we want to you know, keep the creator first in everything we do and reach out to those folks who can, who can support us and surround us as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you again for your time this evening. It's been really wonderful talking with you and um, we look forward to conversating with you more. Appreciate that. And if anybody wants to stay connected to me, go to my website, tawatson.com and definitely download that song, Resilient. Yes. I'm going to listen to it as soon as we hang up. All right. Go on, it, go on and spit some of them bars for us. <laughs> 15 bars. <laughs> I need the beat. I need the beat. Yeah. <laughs> well, on behalf of Team Conversate, uh, Conversate Reads, 
our phenomenal host, Adrian Brown. Thank you again, sis. And you, Dr. Inspiration. I got it right this time. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Oprah, Oprah of the internet. Thank you very much. <laughs> we appreciate your time. And by all means, join us again on the next edition of Conversate Reads. Y'all have a good night. God, God bless. Night.